You're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Statistics. 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 Hi, folks, and welcome to the show. This is Richard Zink, and you're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. This is episode 55, and it features a conversation with Aparna Anderson, David Demetz, Susan Ellenberg, and Janet Wittes about data monitoring committees. We talked about some of the history of DMCs and some of the challenges of implementing them in practice. Before we get started, I want to highlight the registration for the 2018 Regulatory Industry Statistics Workshop is currently open. Advanced registration ends August 14th. Don't be left out. 2017 saw record numbers and sold out prior to the workshop, so get registered. And as a reminder for these discussions, please note that people are sharing their personal opinions, so please don't overinterpret their comments as representing the groups or organizations with which they participate. Now let's start the show. Well, hi folks, our topic today is data monitoring committees. I'm talking with Aparna Anderson, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Statistics Collaborative. David Demetz, Professor Emeritus of the Department of Biostatistics and Medical Informatics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Susan Ellenberg, Professor of Biostatistics and Epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania. And Janet Wittes, President at Statistics Collaborative. Good morning to you all, and thanks so much for being here. Good morning. So before we dive into uh, specifics about data monitoring committees, it would be great if you could each give us a, a brief overview of your current roles. Um, Aparna, why don't we start with you? Sure. Uh, I worked for almost 20 years at Bristol-Myers Squibb before joining Statistics Collaborative in 2016. The vast majority of my involvement with DMCs has been as a blinded statistician sitting on the sponsor study team. Uh, but since joining Statistics Collaborative, I've had the opportunity to sit on committees as a voting member for some projects and to be part of the independent reporting team for other projects. So I've had the good fortune to experience a statistician's role in DMC work from multiple vantage points. And, and what did you do at uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb for 20 years? So I worked in various therapeutic areas. The last decade I was there, I worked primarily in oncology and immuno-oncology projects, leading statistical teams in Phase two and Phase three clinical development. Great. David, uh, how about you? Well, I began my career in 1970 at the NIH, spent um, 12 years at the NIH, and the last 10 at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Uh, as a biostatistician, of, and for a while I was the chief of that branch. In 1982, I came to the University of Wisconsin to build a department from scratch and uh, was the uh, leader of that outfit for about 27 years. And I began my uh, clinical trial career in 1973, and, and in, in the uh, subsequent years I served as a sponsor statistician, I guess, in the NIH perspective. I've been the lead statistician for statistical analysis centers. I've been on numerous data monitoring committees, and, uh, and as well as having my duties here at the University of Wisconsin. Are you still actively involved in uh, any statistical projects? I'm not involved in statistical methodology anymore. I decided I would do that to people who are more qualified and talented than me. But I've been actively involved in data monitoring committees and design of clinical trials. Uh, very good. And Susan, how about you? So I, um, my first involvement with data monitoring committees was uh, in the um, early, uh, late 1980s and early 1990s when I uh, went to work in the Division of AIDS uh, at NIAID in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, and it was my responsibility to uh, sort of be the executive uh, secretary for the uh, for the DSMB, uh, things were pretty chaotic at that point, 
and um, uh, Dave uh, and uh, some other very experienced people were on that uh, DSMB, and we quickly saw that we needed to um, uh, sort of develop a new way of running these meetings that would allow uh, adequate oversight, but at the same time uh, keep everybody pretty much apprised of what was going on because um, uh, because everybody was in a very big hurry and uh, didn't want to be dragging feet if, if there was a, a product that was uh, that was beneficial. So that was that was a very interesting time, and that was that was my introduction. I think we established uh, some uh, interesting and and valuable approaches to managing these kinds of meetings, which which are pretty much still used to this day, the open and closed session. Um, since then, uh, then I went to work for the FDA, and, and I really wasn't involved directly with any data monitoring committees during that time, although my experience, uh, my experience uh, in the Division of AIDS uh, made me one of the few people at the FDA that really had had any involvement uh, with, with these committees. And so when we were asked to write a guidance document about data monitoring committees, I was able to lead the development of that. Uh, I moved to Penn at the end of 2004, and since I've been uh, here, um, I've, uh, I've been the senior statistician on studies, uh, most of the time as, as uh, being blinded, uh, sometimes uh, unblinded. I'm, I also serve on a number of uh, data monitoring committees, both for industry and, um, and for uh, federal, uh, federally sponsored trials. And you organize uh, or co-organize a, a pretty successful yearly uh, conference, is that correct? Uh, yes, on, on statistical issues in clinical trials. So uh, the 2017 conference focused on current issues and data monitoring committees. Uh, I think the, the slides from that trial are still available on, the, on, our, uh, on our website. Uh, it doesn't, you know, the, the conference doesn't focus on data monitoring committees every year, but last year it did, and I think um, those papers are going to be out in the August issue of the Journal of Clinical Trials. So I think I think that'll be an interesting issue. Fantastic. And then uh, and then a, a book that um, uh, Dave Demetz and I and Tom Fleming uh, co-authored on uh, on uh, issues in in data monitoring and clinical trials uh, it was originally published in 2002. Uh, and uh, we have completed work on a second edition, and uh, hopefully that will be out before the end of this year. Oh, fantastic. Congratulations. And uh, Janet, last but not least. Um, so the first DMCs that I was on or, or, or attended in the beginning, they were kind of very open, and you could just show up um, if you were attached to people who were on the committee. It was actually in the early 70s. Um, but I didn't really get involved until 1983 when I joined NHLBI. I, I followed Dave um, at the Biostatistics Research Branch at NHLBI. And what you need to do is every time there's a DMC, only we call them DSMBs, you have to go. You're the branch chief. You're allowed to go to everyone, and they're really interesting and really fun. That's what I did. I went to as many as I could. They were each one was interesting. Each one was different. They were run in different ways. Some of them had open-closed sessions, as Susan described. Some of them didn't. Um, some of them let lots of people in. Some of them didn't. And, and I just learned a whole lot by observing and seeing how all these trials were run. And then, for complicated reasons, I, I left NHLBI. I, was, I loved it there. It was just a wonderful place to be. And in around 1990, I started Statistics Collaborative. And one of the things we did, um, Ed Lakatos, who was then at Searle, who had been with us at NHLBI, called me up and said, "Look, you know how to, you know what DMCs are about. Why don't your company, why doesn't your company do a DMC for us?" And it was the Rawls study, which was for heart failure, um, and. We did, and once we started, we realized this was really, really good to do. We enjoyed it. It's statistically challenging. It's very important. And so as a company, we've been doing a lot of that. I still sit on, I don't know, about a dozen DMCs, mostly for, in, for um, government, either FDA or, 
I'm sorry, NIH or or the VA, um, a couple for industry. So I've I've had and and a few times I've been consulting for an industrial trial, being on the blinded side, um, but not not so being at the open session, but not the closed. So I too have seen the the sort of the 360 degree way that that mm-hmm. DSMBs can operate. And you have a, a, a book with uh, Gordon Lan and Michael Proshin on statistical monitoring, um, often where DMCs would be used quite extensively. That's right. Th- that book is really about, monitor- about statistical approaches to monitoring. Mm-hmm. Implicit in that means that there are DMCs who, who the statistical part of it they would be using, but it doesn't address specifically the the process of a DNC and what it is. Well, before we talk about some of the factors that led to the rise of DMCs in modern clinical trials, let's ask a more fundamental question. What exactly is a a DMC? So um, a DMC, I think a uh, generally accepted definition would be uh, a group of people who are expert in the um, in the required uh, disciplines, the the medical the medical area that's being studied, the patient population, uh, and uh, and statistics, um, uh, who are independent of the trial. That is, they are not participating in the trial in any other way, not entering patients, not serving on the steering committee, um, uh, and without uh, any um, any major conflicts of interest. And they are the ones, uh, and they are charged with reviewing the uh, interim data as they accumulate on some kind of a regular basis uh, to to make sure that the trial uh, is uh, appropriate to continue as it's designed, that it's safe for the participants, and also to oversee the the, uh, quality uh, of the way the trial is being conducted. Well, we talked a little bit about... uh the early to mid-70s, and can you give us a brief historical overview uh, about the time prior to the DMCs and what sort of events led to uh, DMCs being put in place? Yeah, this is Dave DeMetz. Well, there's there's only, only one circumstance where DMCs are required by law. We can talk about that later, but in the mid-1960s, uh, there was a trial called the University Group Diabetes Project, which was evaluating uh, diabetic um, drugs uh, like metformin and, and others to see whether they would reduce the cardiovascular mortality or morbidity from, from diabetes. As the trial progressed, um, and there was no data monitoring committee at that point, uh, as the trial progressed, uh, safety uh, issues began to arise. And so they were suddenly caught in a situation where they didn't have a plan as to how they should evaluate these signals and what to do about them. So they had to form, you might say, an ad hoc group that uh, did the best they could at that point in time to try and get their arms around the efficacy and and safety signals. At about the same time in the mid-1960s, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute knew that they had a number of uh, trials they they were planning to, to see if they could reduce the, at that time, a, a major risk in cardiovascular mortality and morbidity. So they had a committee uh, chaired by Bernie Greenberg, who was a chair of the biostatistics department at UNC at that time, and it became known as the Greenberg Committee, but there was many um, very distinguished uh, clinical researchers on that committee. So they wrote up a report which was for a long time known as the Greenberg Report, but was never published until around 1988 or something like that, uh, which set down the structure of how a clinical trial should be conducted. And in that report, they recommended a, a, an oversight committee, um, a, a policy advisory committee of, of some kind, and, and they set down some principles that the sponsor, in this case the National Heart Institute, uh, should not... Uh, modify or terminate a study without some outside input, independent outside input. So the coronary drug project was the first trial that really got had the benefit of this Greenberg report, 
and they were studying uh, ways to, to lower cholesterol and lipids in a population that just had a heart attack. And so that trial was launched, and as, as, they, as the policy advisory board began to perform its job, they realized that monitoring the safety and, and benefits was a, a major task, and they had lots of things they had to worry about. So they sort of formed a, a subcommittee that became eventually known as the Data Safety Monitoring Board. And as uh, we all know, that trial was a landmark study, as was the UGDP, by the way. But the Corning Drug Project was a landmark study, and it, it taught us a lot about how to do studies, how to design studies, how to analyze studies, and also how to monitor studies. So uh, by 1970, this, this uh, Data Monitoring Committee, Data Safety Monitoring Board, was, it, was, it was in operation and had to wrestle with the termination of uh, several, three or four of the arms of that study. So very quickly, they had to deal with uh, monitoring. But that was the first formal monitoring committee that I'm aware of. Well, thank you for that history. And in, in, in that, you talked a little bit about um, the interactions between um, the different parties uh, involved with data monitoring committees and the sponsor. But can you give a? Can one of you give a little bit more information about typical DMC interactions uh, with sponsor organizations and how they manage those interactions? Yeah, this is Aparna. Uh, so, after a sponsor engages um, experts to to sit on the committee, uh, the first formal interaction occurs at an organizational kickoff meeting. Uh, where the sponsor provides an overview of the clinical development program and describes specific features of the protocol and study design, um, particularly those that have bearing on the DMC's review. Um, the kickoff meeting is also where the DMC charter is discussed in detail. So the charter is a document that governs all aspects of the DMC activities, including roles and responsibilities, the procedures for open and closed session meetings and how recommendations are communicated, as well as the statistical monitoring guidelines. And so in that initial organizational meeting, the charter is discussed in detail and is adjusted as needed for clarity and then subsequently finalized. After the kickoff meeting, um, the interactions between the DMC and the sponsor are generally confined to the open sessions and subsequent planned meetings and uh, the communication of recommendations to the sponsor following um, the, the planned meetings and the closed sessions. And the DMC chair typically communicates the committee's recommendations to one or two people on the sponsor's side, addressing whether the study should continue as planned, whether the study should be modified in any way, or whether the study should be stopped for, for any reason. For other communications between the DMC and the sponsor, uh, the independent reporting statistician typically acts as the go-between to avoid inadvertent disclosure of interim results to the sponsor. So you brought up a, a, an important point uh, a couple times in your uh, description that uh, the DMC makes recommendations and, and sometimes uh, we may think that the DMC is sort of making a decision on the sponsor's behalf, but they're just making recommendations to the sponsor who ultimately needs to make the decision. Are there are there any examples um, that you know of where a, a DMC has overstepped its bounds on interim findings or um, where they were leaked perhaps and led to a trial sort of falling apart? Yeah, so I have an example. This is Janet. I can't tell you what it is, but I can give you the, the rough, the rough um, outlines of it. So there was a trial, this would have been maybe about 15 years ago, with an inexperienced DMC. And I, I say that because that's an important piece, that, that when you set up a DMC, you better have people who are experienced. You need a mixture of experienced and inexperienced ones, so the inexperienced ones will learn. But, but you have to have at least some people that really understand the role. And in this particular case, um, there were adverse events that occurred that were unexpected. 
And in many trials, the adverse events show up first and the benefit shows up later. So an experienced DMC will sit and say, oh, my goodness, here's something we didn't expect, but we, didn't ex we don't know whether there's benefit yet. This particular DMC stopped, recommended stopping the trial early. And they went to the sponsor. It was a, actually an academic sponsor who um, who called an Uber DMC. And I was a member of that Uber DMC. It was a DMC to evaluate what the previous DMC had done. And what we all said was, my goodness, we would not have stopped this trial. But we're not the DMC. And we don't want to circumvent what they said. And so we think you should stop it. But in the future, make sure you understand when you, when you bring people on, make sure you really train them about what they should see and how they should react. But I would also like to add, I think main DMCs take their responsibilities very seriously. Um, and I, I don't know of other cases. That's the only case that I know mm -hmm. um, where the DMC itself did something that was probably not right. I've seen, however, um, anal two other groups that sometimes do things that are not that are questionable. Sometimes the sponsor um, will try to get the DMC or the reporting statistician to stay more than they should. And so they'll, mm -hmm. especially true of small companies, not big companies. Um, and then there's also the charter as, uh, that is the, guide, the guideline for the DMC. Some of these charters are overly restrictive, mm -hmm. and they require the DMC. A responsible DMC will often feel that it has to quote, violate the charter because the rules were so restrictive and, and they put the committee in shackles. Um, so again, it's very important in writing that charter and in talking through the charter with the DMC to make sure that everybody is comfortable with the consequence of what the guidelines are. And generally, the DMC would have input on that final charter, is that correct? In my experience, yes. Okay. They do, um, and some DMC members read every word very carefully. <laughs> That's probably good practice then. <laughs> so, uh, are there I, I, would, I would like to, sure. I, I like to just throw in another comment, and that is that different people have different views about what. The, what is the extent of, of a difference or of a finding should, in fact, lead to a trial being terminated early. So any time a trial is terminated early, you would undoubtedly uh, not to look too hard to find people who would argue that the DMC should never have recommended that trial stop early. Now, in the case that Janet mentioned, there may have been uh, a, a, a wide consensus of, of experienced people that that trial should not have stopped. But there, there, are, um, there are researchers out there who believe that trials should almost never stop early uh, because it's really important to get the most precise possible estimate of a, of a treatment effect. And we've all seen things that look like there's an effect emerging early that, that goes away. So I, I think it's, you know, when you say, what did it, has the DMC overstepped its bounds? I think you would find a lot of people who would give cases where they think a DMC recommended stopping that they shouldn't have, but that wouldn't necessarily be a common uh, a common view. Sure, and thank yeah, you. Yeah, and that. there's another side that that could be that often DMCs are criticized for not recommending stopping, right? Exactly. You, all the data, right? you can say, oh, right. look, if I had seen you say that, I would have I would have not stopped, or I would have stopped. So yes. There's a lot of second-guessing of DMCs, but I think it's important to think about these committees as committees that really feel responsible for what they're doing. Yes. Sure. Thanks for uh, those good points. Uh, that uh, Yeah, DMCs are probably in a place where they can't make anybody happy. <laughs> <So>. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and thanks for the, the clarity on the, 
um, on that point. Um, are there any major differences uh, in the roles or operations of DMCs for NIH-sponsored trials versus uh, those for clinical trials uh, for pharmaceutical companies that are submitted to regulatory agencies? So to me, the biggest, uh, there are certainly are differences. Uh, one, one big difference is I think typically for a trial sponsored by industry, the trial sponsor would not be part of the closed session and would not have access to the interim results. And mostly that's not true for trials that are sponsored by NIH or other government agencies where the project uh, leader or, or someone at least from the sponsor, perhaps not the, not the main program manager, uh, will, be, uh, will be in the closed session and will have access to the interim results. And I'll, I'll just add, uh, you know, an area of distinction um, with companies is that uh, because of competitive and financial pressures, companies are, are looking for ways to shrink the time between availability of study results and submission of the data to health authorities. And I've seen, interestingly, that analyses generated for DMC reviews can play an important role here for companies. So, for example, uh, if a pivotal study shows a positive interim result, the DMC closed report can be used as a communication tool with the FDA for discussing top-line results, um, especially if FDA has um, granted what's known as breakthrough therapy designation to the study. So in this way, the sponsor can get very early feedback from FDA well before the usual pre-submission meeting. And I think the most notable example of this in recent years is the nivolumab approval in relapsed or refractory squamous non-small cell lung cancer, where the FDA used the closed DMC report showing an overall survival benefit versus docetaxel. Um, and, and the DMC report and the accompanying data sets provided the basis for approval within three months from the time that the interim results were produced for the DMC. And um, the, Dr. Dr. Richard Pazder, who's the director of FDA's Office of Hematology and Oncology Products within CEDAR, he described this case example uh, very nicely in the March 2015 edition of the Cancer Letter. So it's an interesting, um, interesting example of how DMC activities really accelerated approval in a high unmet need um, population and indication. Well, that's great. Thanks for sharing that example, and uh, I'm sure the listeners will uh, be interested to uh, explore that uh, in more detail uh, when they get the opportunity. Um, are there, are, there, are there, what are some of the major challenges uh, for DMCs and their members? Uh, so you talked about compressed timelines. Uh, certainly, we always have to try to do more with less and you know, shrinking amounts of time. Uh, what are some of these challenges to DMCs in, in getting their work done and providing a thorough review? This is Dave Demetz. Um, one of the constant challenges these days is we have a proliferation of data monitoring committees, sometimes for, for the right reason and sometimes maybe not. They're not necessary. But in any case, the demand for DMC members is increasing as well as the statistical units that support them. And so what's happened in recent years is that the demand has outstripped the supply. So you've already heard uh, people allude to the fact that members were not experienced and, and, and may have made recommendations that were not um, optimum from some points of view. Another challenge is that sponsors sometimes want to restrict the amount of data you get. Uh, for example, you will be given safety-only data. Uh, it's when, when most of us who are in this area of activity believe you have to have efficacy and safety data to do a proper assessment. You need the data to be timely. These days that's uh, perhaps easier to accomplish with our electronic uh, capabilities, but still data has to be up to date reasonably. I mean, if there's an adjudication process for events, that needs to be up to date. Uh, we've already talked about statistical analysis plans being overly restrictive. Uh, for example, they, it may say you get to only look once. Well, what happens if you had a just missed or a just made it? You probably wouldn't want to. You'd want to look again in, in the very near future. Sometimes charters are, what they're written is 
prohibits that kind of activity. So um, there are a lot of challenges. Uh, a lot of it has to do with differences of opinion or even ignorance of what the process should be. Sometimes there's a, there's a fear of, quote, spending alpha, but for goodness sakes, only look once. Uh, so it's a constant challenge, but I think we have enough experience now that for the most part we can do it reasonably well. Oh, I was going to say, I think there's some other things that, that make it difficult, that not only the timeliness of the data and not only do sometimes sponsors only limit the certain variables, only allow the, the reporting statistician and the DMC to have certain variables. But sometimes they insist that um, they will write the program. And so the DMC, whoever is reporting to the DMC, runs those programs. And if you have to change the program because something happens that you didn't anticipate, um, contracts, some contracts are written in a way that the only way you can make those changes is to tell the, the sponsor what you're doing. And that, of course, violates the whole idea of independence and, mm -hmm. and confidentiality and so forth. And I think that's a big problem in a lot of the committees where the reporting statistician is not experienced. What would you what what are typically the reasons that are provided for a sponsor not given certain endpoints, say like the efficacy uh, endpoint that was mentioned earlier? They're afraid, as Dave said, of using up alpha. Mm. And they're afraid and, and actually there are parts of the FDA that I wish would read the guidance that Susan wrote or that Susan took leadership on because there are parts of the FDA that will say you should not be looking at efficacy data. And so um, sponsors are legitimately frightened, therefore. If, if, if the regulators say you shouldn't be doing it, hmm. they're, they're very uncomfortable. I see. So having uh, done a little DMC stuff in the past myself, uh, one of the major challenges I observed uh, – as a statistician at a sponsor organization is convincing senior management of the importance of maintaining a blind to study data, uh, you know, with the argument sort of handed back to me, well, we need the ability to plan uh, future activities uh, based on, you know, whether or not something's going to go forward. Um, how do you balance this need to, for planning um, uh, versus maintaining confidentiality in practice? Well, first of all, the FDA is not going to be very happy if uh, senior management are routinely reviewing uh, the interim results. The idea of getting a jump start, you know, early results are, are can be often misleading. Uh, small numbers tend to lie about trends, and so if you, if you start building the plant based on early trends, you can be wrong a lot. And so I think that this, I understand the need to get going and get your plans in place, but you have to have enough data to do that well. And second of all, there's all kinds of room for biases and, and so forth to enter in if you are sharing the data widely. And I'll just add from my perspective, having sat in a company for many years, I think for, for double-blind phase three studies, uh, my experience is that it's generally accepted at all levels within the company that looking at interim data is, is really off-limits. Um, I've sometimes seen, however, that some people seem less concerned about looking at interim data if the study is open-label, uh, even if it's a, a, an open-label Phase three study, um, and certainly if it's a non-registrational Phase two study, say for dose selection or proof of concept. Um, so I think that it's clear with Phase three studies that the response to uh, a request for access to interim data is, is clear. You can't look at interim data because of the, the compromise to the integrity of the study, um, and, and it's likely to damage, if not ruin, the regulatory path to approval. For non-registrational studies, I think it can be more of a gray area. Um, mm -hmm. and a key aspect to those studies is for internal decision-making. And so I think the role of the statistician there is to explain 
um, you know, the, the, the potential introduction of bias, as Dave was mentioning, inflation of type 1 error, those sorts of things. But ultimately, the senior management team has to weigh those scientific costs against the business case for reviewing the data and decide whether early access to data is more important than having uncompromised data at the end of the study. And this is Janet. I, I think the issue for large companies and mature companies like, like BMS, where Aparna came from, there, there is they really understand the importance of integrity of the trial and so forth. When you have a small study, a small company that is has one product and is doing its phase three and wants to sell itself to a bigger company, the the business pressures become much stronger, mm -hmm. and how to how to leak out a controlled leak of information to a small group of people in the company, if that can be done, sometimes it is, and sometimes it causes just it really wreaks havoc. Maybe sharing the the point earlier um, <clears throat> that um, y you know. Uh, small numbers tend to lie that um, you know there's the potential that things could change drastically would cause people to uh, back off somewhat uh, if you talk about bias or integrity maybe people <laughs> won't think as much about that as if the uh, the answer changes but these are all important points for uh, people to consider and use to uh, push back I want to talk a, a couple questions about um, uh, draft guidance uh, from the FDA on IDA, I, IND safety reporting. It describes a, a related uh, committee um, called the uh, to the DMC called the Safety Assessment Committee. Can you briefly describe the Safety Assessment Committee and compare its role to a traditional DMC? You know, well, the Safety Assessment Committee is a committee that, whose charge it is to look at serious adverse events as they're coming in and to decide whether they are unexpected and caused by the, the, the drug in question, the experimental drug. Um, and so it's a committee, and different companies have been setting them up in different ways. Some of them are blind. Some of them are not blind. Some of them, there are all different ways that they set them up. Um, but I think, and there's been a lot of discussion about, well, maybe the DMCs should be doing this because they're seeing um, unblinded data all the time. So they have access to these data, and they could, they in principle, could satisfy this role. I think there are two problems with it. One is they don't see data as the data are coming in. They only see data in, in a um, periodic way. But the other thing that I think is more fundamental, and I, I'd be curious how the rest of you feel, the, the culture is really different. Data monitoring committees have historically seen themselves as protecting the participants in the trial and the integrity of the study. And they don't like to release information to the sponsor unless they're pretty sure that the information that they're releasing is correct. So if they see a signal of harm, they're not going to say anything about it unless they're pretty sure that, oh my goodness, the informed consent document should be changed, the sponsor should know it, and so forth. The sponsor, on the other hand, is really, they're, um, they're liable for not reporting harms as they come in, harms that are caused where there's evidence of a causal relation to the um, to the experimental drug. So, so the two cultures are really different. And I I've don't know. I, I think if the DMC were to take over that role, they'd have to be split in their ways of thinking. Which part of me is a DMC role? and therefore protective of the data, which part of me is a safety assessment committee and therefore releasing the data. Mm -hmm. This is Dave DeMath. At the recent Society for Clinical Trialing, there was a session 
that Greg Ball organized about these safety assessment committees. And some of the discussion during this session as well as afterwards, many of the experiences and techniques and so forth that data monitoring committees are used to, it was suggested it would be very helpful to the safety assessment committee, even though their mission is different, the ways you go about assessing interim data uh, would be useful to them. At least they, they seem to be interested in learning more about what we do. So we'll have to see how this works out over time. Do you see the potential, uh, Jenna? You were worried about um, somebody, I guess, serving in, on a DMC and a safety uh, assessment committee. Do you see any potential for um, clashing between sort of two uh, entirely distinct groups uh, between the safety assessment committee and the DMC. Say if the DMC gives a recommendation and the safety assessment committee then goes in to look at particular types of data. Um, what are your thoughts on oh, that? Oh, I was referring to something different. I, I was thinking not that you'd sit on both committees, but that the data monitoring committee would act as a safety assessment committee at the oh, same I see. time. I see. And what I was saying is that then, in those two roles, your behavior might be different. Um, I don't think it's impossible, and I think that maybe that we need, as Dave said, there there is a discussion going on about about how to integrate these these two roles. But I think it has to be done very carefully and slowly, um, mm -hmm. as we learn. Look, it took decades to learn how to do DMCs. Um, suddenly, to to give this new responsibility when it's just just coming out and just the companies are just learning how to do it, to suddenly give that as an additional role for the DMC, I don't think we're ready. I see, and it, it also sounds as if everybody's uh, implementing it in a different way, so trying to figure out what the best practices uh, might be in the first place uh, still needs uh, some time um, to mature. So many of you have uh, authored some wonderful texts on uh, data monitoring committees. Um, how do, and I, I believe we also mentioned that there's the uh, data monitoring committee uh, regulatory guidance, um, but how do statisticians in general gain practical training uh, and experiences in DMCs? Well, this is Dave DeMath. Um, I think through a couple of meetings, one of the think tank that was sponsored by Duke Clinical Research Institute and another one which was a project which was sponsored by the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, um, recognized the problem of supply and demand and experience. All these discussions led to the fact we need better training. So you can write books and papers and guidance documents, but it still takes that special communication that, that courses with, with dialogue between the instructor and the student take place to, to become more meaningful. So we've been complaining about this for a decade or more, and I think uh, in, in, with the recent interest and intensity of data monitoring committees, um, a group of us have organized ourselves, or at least we think we're organized, to put on training sessions for, for not just statisticians, uh, for, for clinical members or people with that kind of expertise that are essential for a data monitoring committee. So we're, we're offering uh, a one-day course on data monitoring committees and also a one-day course on how to be a good statistical center so you can provide uh, useful and, and respectable uh, reports for the DMC to review. Now, having said that, we don't think even that is good enough. We, you do need, there's nothing like experience. The problem we've had is even though we've been recommending that there be an apprentice or an internship program, uh, very few, if any, uh, sponsors have picked up that, that guidance. And so we have to work harder at getting sponsors to allow one or two uh, extra members, perhaps non-voting, definitely non-voting, I suppose, in some cases, to sit in and see how it goes. Because the thing that you don't, you can't, you can't teach is to watch how data come and ebb and flow. It looks like a problem, then it's not a problem, then it becomes a problem again, even stronger. 
uh, or an early result fades away. All those kind of things uh, you, you can you can you need to experience it to be able to learn how to deal with it. So books are nice, articles are nice, training sessions are nice, but we need to find a way to get people to actually have an apprenticeship for at least one or two studies. Um, if people at the FDA and EMA could attend AMC meetings, um, because I, they're they're regulating, but it's the one thing that they don't have a window into. The issue of FDA participation, of course, is difficult. In years past, uh, there were occasionally um, people from the FDA. You can imagine that a company would dearly love to have somebody who's ultimately going to be approving their or you know evaluating their product to be sitting on the the, the oversight committee. Uh, because they feel that if everything goes okay, then they're kind of in like Flynn when the when the uh, NDA is submitted. Um, but that led to some problems in the past um, with trying to FDA people trying to wear two hats. And I think now, um, you know, it's sort of gone so far that nobody can serve on these committees. When I was at the FDA, I did serve. On a, on, one, on a data monitoring committee for one of the large cancer groups. And it was a useful experience. Um, and if a product came up that was something that I might be involved with, I was in the Center for Biologics, and if, it was, if there was a biological product involved in the, in, the, um, in the study, then I would recuse myself. And I, I would like to see um, some thought given to having FDA be, be able to participate as a member of data monitoring committees for products that they don't, you know, would not have any regulatory jurisdiction over. Is there anything, uh, steps that people can proactively take to try to convince uh, sponsors to sort of uh, engage in this idea with uh, apprenticeships? Or do you think it's just going to have to be a situation where um, it just reaches a critical mass where, you know, there's no uh, experienced DMC statisticians or, or participants left that uh, they're basically forced into it? Well, we have actually, one of the things we do whenever we have a DMC, um, we, we try to persuade the, the sponsor to put on a, um, an intern or a res or a, uh, an, inex an inexperienced person either as a watcher or as a member and there are a couple of companies that have been doing that regularly, which is wonderful. Most say no. But I think eventually people are going to realize they better do it, otherwise <laughs> otherwise this old generation is not going to be there anymore. So I guess a uh, take-home message for anybody listening, uh, start letting uh, some apprentices on the, some DMCs. And, and a final question um, Sort of, uh, you know, as technology takes hold and hear uh, all these buzzwords about machine learning, artificial intelligence, things of that nature. Um, so, with the the advent of web-based interactive software that allows you to explore, to visually explore data and sort of run follow-up analyses, uh, do you see the potential uh, for these being used more in DMCs versus, say, sort of static? Um, uh, PDF tables and listings um, so the uh, DMC members can m m sort of more interactively explore the data or do you think that's far off or not a good idea? What are your thoughts on that? I, I can't even, I'm not sure I can even picture that. So I guess I'm in the Neanderthal category too. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm very much in the, in the Neanderthal category. I mean, how can Remember, they only come in every six months or so. They don't have expertise at analysis. I, I see, I can see this as a real problem, people feeling that they can play around with data and learn something on the fly and make it a recommendation. To me, that's a dangerous idea. But I'd really like to hear somebody who thinks it's good this is Dave. I wouldn't want to say I think it's good. I think it might be helpful to be able to check out some peculiar adverse event in a little more detail than the carefully prepared analysis report by the Statistical Center. 
But in general, I would be very fearful of it and think that even in good hands, it could be dangerous, and in inexperienced hands, it would be even worse. So mm-hmm. in the face of it, without more experience, I'm, I'm not necessarily in favor of this idea. And I would concur as well. I mean, I can see in very isolated situations where there could be, you know, something valuable to it, but but it's far offset with the the potential risks. I've I've seen situations where, um, you know, something has come up in a discussion on a on a data monitoring committee, where people would like to see something else that's not in the tables, and if you have a a highly capable um, uh, statistical and data analysis center, you have somebody there, they might be able to produce that answer uh, in real time uh, right at the meeting. And I've seen that done. Mm-hmm. And that can be helpful. But then you have somebody who's very knowledgeable about the database as the person who's actually going in and doing that. Sure. So the potential for people to have access to a system to explore things on their own um, um, doesn't wouldn't let you sleep well at night. That's what I'm hearing. Um, no, those are all, all very good uh, thoughts. That you still need the experience of someone to uh, generate the results and validate the results, and then have people sort of come together to uh, uh, understand and then communicate the results. So, well, thank you for that. Well, I appreciate. I can have. Sure. No. The the other thing that can happen um, is that a question arises and and whoever's presenting the data can't do it right at that meeting the way Susan is describing. But we'll say, let me me go home, let me analyze, and I'll get back to you within a day or two so that there is a feedback, but it's not immediate. Well, thanks for the additional uh, follow-up, and and thank you all today for uh, your time talking about uh, data monitoring committees. so a little bit of history, a little bit of where we are, and hopefully uh, where we're going to go with all of the uh, the DMC apprenticeships in the future. Um, I appreciate uh, your times and your thoughts on the subject. Thank you for organizing it. Yeah, thank you. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Episode 55 on Data Monitoring Committees. Well, it's finally here. Next week is our panel discussion among statistics and data science podcasters at JSM. Joining me is John Baylor at Stats and Stories, Katie Malone at Linear Digressions, and Kyle Polich at Data Skeptic. Look for the session in the online program and try to attend. We're session 403, and it's from 2 to 3.50 on Tuesday. Finally, have an idea for a podcast or have a question? Send me an email at rzinc at targetpharmasolutions.com. That's That's rzinc, Z-I-N-K, at targetpharmasolutions.com. Until next time.